Hello and welcome to episode 21 of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. I'm talking today with Jim Stockard of Harvard University's Graduate School of Design about his Loeb Fellowship programme lecture, Affordable Housing, It's Just a Right, and a piece Jim wrote for the TEDx blog entitled Why Affordable Housing Needs to be a Right, Not a Privilege. I know people would like to say this business about um, well, some towns just don't need affordable housing, right? It's just uh, it, Wellesley is a town full of rich people here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Every police officer, every fire person, every waiter in a restaurant, every uh, clerk in a store in that town, uh, every school teacher need, is eligible for the affordable housing. They all make incomes less than 80% of very median income. Mm-hmm. And of course, in a place like Cambridge, we get a brand new school teacher in our school system. They're energetic and, and have all the latest techniques and they're excited, but they don't have any background, right? So they take the first job they can find. Well, they get a job in Cambridge and uh, they can't afford to live within 30 miles of Cambridge. So they live up in Revere, and way up north. Of, and they drive down to Cambridge every day. It's this terrible commute. And as soon as they get three years or four years under their belt as a school teacher and have a resume, they apply for a job closer to Revere. And they leave the Cambridge school system and go to Revere, where they're now an experienced teacher. And we have to fill another job. Now, a lot of people say, oh, it's a school system problem, or it's a human resources problem, or it's a, well, it's a housing problem. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture, and space. Hello, and welcome again to A is for Architecture. I'm talking today to Jim Stockard. Jim, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, I uh, have the pleasure of, of uh, meeting Ambrose when he was uh, when he was a, uh, a, a scholar and a teacher at Glasgow School of Art. Um, I'm a housing guy. Um, I have a fairly long career um, doing a range of activities in the in the arena of affordable housing. Uh, I've been very very lucky in my career to have a chance to um, to work for local public agencies, state bodies, national, uh, U.S. Congress, uh, and uh, in places around the country, uh, the nonprofit and public sector and for-profit arena. Uh, I've helped people uh, build housing. Uh, I've helped people uh, study housing. I've helped people um, uh, uh, develop housing policies uh, that would work for their communities. And for the last bunch of years, um, I've been able to teach about housing, which has been a great pleasure. I've taught at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, uh, graduate students for the most part about housing issues. So uh, as I said, Ambrose, I'm a housing guy. And <laughs> that's that's the beginning and end of the story. <laughs> but you're, you're not an architect. You're a planner. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, I, I started, I have an undergraduate degree in architecture. And, and I realized, frankly, that I didn't have a gift for that. Um, I think architects who are good at that have a gift and I didn't have it, even though I wanted to have it, I didn't have it. <laughs> uh, and, and so I switched to urban planning, which for me was the right choice. It, it, I'm, a, I'm a planner and I, I like being a planner. I like this, the, the diversity of roles I get to do as a city planner. So that was training in the eighties. Oh, I'm afraid it was before that. Uh, my uh, master's I'm, I'm so good. At, I'm so good at this. I'm so good at uh, this. My master's degree in city planning was issued in uh, 1968. Oh, right. <laughs> so you were learning during that whole, I suppose the the turn against in planning, the turn perhaps against that post-war dominant 
New York style highways and exactly right and and the great good fortune I had was to stumble into uh, work with a with a, a a planner who became my mentor and who was a great advocate of the changes that we were making in those days in the planning field. He was a practitioner and an advocate for what we then called citizen participation. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Davidoff had written an important work about engagement of the citizenry as a, as a, as a counter to the top-down urban renewal planning that was so uh, had dominated the, this country in the 40s and 50s and, and still to some extent in the 60s. Um, and so I was, I was nurtured in the beginning of my career in uh, bottom-up planning, in the, 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 the business of listening to the citizens about what's important for their communities, their housing, and so on. So, uh, yes, that's right. I, I, I came into this field at a, at a sort of an, an interesting turning point uh, in how we thought about cities in those days. And were you, were you in the um, uh, Boston at that time? Yes, I, I, uh, my graduate degree was um, from Harvard here. And this first job I got in the summer was a, was a job at City Hall in Cambridge. Uh -huh. And so I, I worked at City Hall in Cambridge um, doing housing work, learning about the housing field. Um, I, I, uh, I, and, and shortly after, I, after about a year in that office, um, Justin, my mentor, set up a consulting firm and uh, asked me to join him in that firm where we tried to do this kind of work in other places around, uh, around Massachusetts and, and eventually broader than that. And, um, and, and so uh, for 27 years, I worked for Justin and or the successor to his firm. Uh, we, we changed the names and changed the participants a number of times, but uh, my, my longtime partner, Bob Engler, um, and I were the sort of commonality of that firm for the 27 years. Um, and it still exists today. Bob is still doing that work today after I, after I left the firm to, to, go to, to go to run the Loeb Fellowship. Um, so, so Citizen, I, this is off piece because I sent you some provocations beforehand, which were to do with housing. But I think this oh, yeah. is, I think if, if uh, I'm starting to sort of let the jigsaw pieces fall into place here, why, why, why this issue around affordability and I guess it's a justice-orientated perspective you have towards housing, which is, it's also pragmatic. You, you make this point in the couple of things that, uh, that the, the um, uh, talk you gave uh, at, at the time you finished in the Loeb Fellowship uh, at GSD, and, and then also a nice thing on the TED Talks blog. Um, what does citizen involvement in planning, because I, because I've, looked into citizen participation and how, you know, Sherry Arnstein's ladder of citizen participation. And I've, right, I've right. read a huge amount around that. And in the contemporary period, citizen participation seems to me to have been uh, somewhat denatured, commodified, commercialized, and corrupted, maybe? Is that fair? <laughs> yes, it is. Well, uh, I, I would say a couple of things, uh, Ambrose. Um, uh, first, a story I, I really like to tell my students. A, a friend of mine, years and years and years ago, wrote a book called um, uh, The Active Patient's Guide to Good Medical Care. And in the book, he says, every meeting between a patient and myself is a meeting of two experts. I'm an expert in chemistry and biology and disease and illness. The patient is an expert in 
what they feel in the way of pain, what they're willing to tolerate, what their goals are in terms of their health. And if we don't each listen to each other and give credibility to each other's uh, knowledge, we won't have a very successful meeting. And that's the way I think of citizen engagement in the planning field. There are some things I know about cities that the average citizen walking around the street probably doesn't know. Uh, I know, for example, uh, here in my neighborhood, uh, it's very difficult to have both decreased density and lots more mom and pop stores. Mom and pop stores need foot traffic and therefore they need density. And it's very hard uh, to make a mom and pop store work in a very low density neighborhood. Uh, Starbucks can throw a, a, a store in there and, and use it as a lost leader and not really care very much whether it makes money or not, but they're trying to get people to buy Starbucks in other places. And so that's something that I know that average walking around citizens don't know. On the other hand, I don't know about living in the neighborhood I'm working with. I've never lived there. I don't know what's inconvenient or convenient. I don't know what's safe or unsafe. Uh, I don't know uh, who's who the people are that keep the neighborhood knit together the bartenders, the president, the superintendent of the schools, the, the headmaster at the local elementary school, the minister, whoever. Um, and so I got to listen to the citizens uh, about what they're expert at, and, and they need to listen to me a little bit at what I'm expert at. Um, and and so, so I think that citizen engagement, participation's not as good a word, I don't think anymore, but engagement does demand something of me and of the citizens. Yeah. I need to share my knowledge and explain where my knowledge comes from. And I need to listen really hard. And the residents need to understand and take seriously what I offer them, but also to share their knowledge with me and tell me what works and doesn't work um, so that we have an engaged conversation. We each bring our own skill set to the, to, the, to, the, to the table. Uh, and a good example is the question of affordable housing and property values. Many people assume that uh, if you build some affordable housing in their neighborhood, their property value will go down. And since in this country, at least, about 75% of everybody's personal net worth is the equity they have in the home they own, then they're nervous about the property value going down. It's stealing their wealth. And so they assume that that affordable housing down the street will steal some of their wealth. In point of fact, all the research we have about affordable housing uh, these days in the, in the 21st century in the latter part of the 20th century is that either your property value will stay the same or it will actually go up. And the reason is that when people imagine affordable housing going up down the road, what they imagine is an old style, high rise, ill-maintained, uh, 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 no grass kind of seedy place and assume that that will uh, impact their property values negatively. In point of fact, in this day and age, nobody builds housing like that anymore. Yeah. And affordable housing producers uh, know that it's important to them and for their neighborhoods and to, and to their own work that they make really handsome places that are well-kept, well-maintained, uh, the residents, uh, the leases enforced, and, 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 and uh, the places in addition to the neighborhood, not a subtraction. So, so residents have to be willing to, to, to deal with that and learn from that and, and, and work on that and then tell us more about where is a good location for some, for some new housing? Uh, what do we need in the way of transportation in this neighborhood to make new housing work? Um, what's the situation with the schools and the parks and the playgrounds? Uh, those are things that we can learn from neighbors that none of us will ever know since we don't live there. So uh, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ambrose, that um, 
there have there has been a sort of a uh, 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 dumbing down of this whole <clears throat> enterprise. Um, well, let's have two public meetings. As long as we have 20 people in the meeting, check off the box and we're done. Uh, or I'm going in to stop this project. I don't care what they say to me tonight. I'm stopping this project, whatever it is. Uh, I don't want any changes in my name. So if, if we could get to the table in a civil way, there are people now, some of the technology is working now to help us have better, better communication with people. Um, there are many people who have devised techniques, a lot of model making, a lot of drawing on maps and helping people think about their neighborhoods and, and make comments about what's great about their neighborhood. Uh, kids, people get kids involved in this kind of conversation. So it's a must do. Uh, we can't go back to, to top down planning, Ambrose, for sure. But we can also get better at, at the way in which my own my own pet peeve is planners who only show up in a neighborhood when there's a project to be talked about. Because the natural history of that is they've been working on that project for six months. They've been working back and forth with the one who's going to build it or develop it or shape it or whatever. They've, they've, they have become invested. And so when they get to the meeting with the citizens, uh, they get defensive whenever anybody's got a question about the, about this mm -hmm. new element in the neighborhood. Um, and so uh that's a really bad form of citizen engagement. And, and I frankly think we'd be better off if planners basically were hanging around the neighborhoods that they're responsible for all the time mm. without a project to advocate for or to discuss. Uh, just to ask questions. So what's going on now? I, I, hear the, I hear the pastor at the church down the street just got changed. What's the new guy like? Uh, uh, you know, and I saw Ruby's clothes. That was a great restaurant, wasn't it? What's going to go in Ruby's spot then? those kinds of, of, of conversations that are not so loaded and not so, um, uh, so, so, so ready to explode yeah. uh, in, in a meeting. So I, I'd like us planners to be more engaged, more regularly without something to advocate for. I mean, I think that's a really interesting point that you started with this, this idea of the professional <clears throat> not having this false humility about their expertise. I think a lot of the participation engagement that I have encountered and perhaps even been involved in is really based around a kind of performance of humility when you go in as the professional and pretend that you that that the citizen has more power to define the brief than they really do because what you're essentially asking them to do is architectural design or urban design work which they can't do and so in a way it's it's actually a, a rather noxious power play because you you throw on people something that they feel um out of their depth with and so they they step back and hide and then you can carry on doing what you like and and i actually i actually think that that's not accidental i think that's strategic i think that that is with bad urban planning, of which there is still quite a bit. Um, and I think you might have seen- Oh, in your country too? Oh, it's <laughs> <I'm> shocked. <laughs> but, uh, but I did want to know, I did wonder, you know, you've, as you said, with your, in, in your practice, you've worked with nonprofit, public sector, and for-profit sector. Who are the most, who have got this community engagement down? Who are doing it best? Oh, I mean, it's probably not uh, a straight, you know, a straight, diagram but yeah. what what makes yeah who's got the resources i suppose isn't it 
Well, uh, I think it's a combination of the resources to spend the time it takes to do it mm-hmm. um, and the attitudes of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you, in this country, we have 3,500 housing authorities, like your housing councils. Uh, These are public bodies that they're not the city council, but they're an independent public body that that owns the the affordable housing that we call public housing, like Mm -hmm. your social housing. Um, And um, many of those bodies are absolutely terrible at this kind of work. A few are really quite brilliant at it. Um, and, uh, and I think that that begins with the directors of those organizations um, and works its way down through the staff. Uh, it means that when they recruit people for their staff, they recruit people that share that point of view. That, that one, one important quality, um, and this may get to your point, Ambrose, that one important quality is patience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and in, in, on that score, you can probably almost draw a line from the least patient being the for-profit guys, the medium prof, uh, patient being the nonprofits, and the patient being the housing authorities, uh, councils in your, in your language. Um, the, the, the for-profits, time is money, time is money. We gotta make this decision fast. We'll get one meeting and get this out of the way. The nonprofits, many of the ones that I've worked with, are really neighborhood-based. Some of the staff lives in the neighborhood. Sometimes the director does. The board members are all from the neighborhood. Um, and they kind of had a, a motivation to get it right mm. as opposed to hurry up. Mm. Uh, and so they're a little better at the question of engagement, I think. They're, yeah. um, they can, in some cases, be almost too good. You know, well, Harry missed the last meeting. So even though we made a bunch of decisions, we've got to do the meeting again so Harry can be in the meeting. Well, I... Maybe not. <laughs> uh, 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 and the housing authorities, whose funding and um, is the most secure of all of these groups, mm-hmm. um, are, are perhaps the ones that, if they choose, can be as patient as possible, and they can have as many meetings as mm. as they want to, or surveys, or mm. uh, tours, or whatever else might be appropriate for some for some engagement processes. But there are exceptions to that rule on all sides. Yeah. Uh, there are some for-profit folks who are terrific at this. Uh, one of our for-profit developers here in, in, uh, in Boston um, converted uh, two uh, major public housing sites that were very troubled into mixed income properties and, and, and had them owned by a nonprofit corporation the, uh, with two board members, two board members were from his company, which is a for-profit development company, and two board members were residents from the development. And the rest of his developer friends said, "What are you crazy, man? You're gonna you let the tenants have half the votes on the on the board of directors of this thing? That could that could screw everything else up." And Joe, very wise man, said, "No, you guys don't understand. They want exactly the same thing out of this property that I want. They want the apartments to be filled." They want the lease to be enforced. They want the grounds to look nice. They want you to collect the rent in a fair way. Um, they want all the same things we want. It's just working our way to getting there. And so it's it was, these boards are, are, and because they have half a role in this thing, they learn more about it. They, they get to know what it's like to make the budget balanced and what it's like when one of the maintenance guys is not doing his job. And 
So, so they share with us the, 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 the issues around keeping a development healthy um, and, and help, us, help us do a better job because they have knowledge about certain kinds of things that we'll, we'll never get back at the, back at the office. So, I, I, so th that's a for-profit guy who's better at this stuff than lots of nonprofits yeah. or public agencies. But the, the thing that that points to, so one of the, the in the provocations I send you, so I'm getting there, I'm getting there, but one of the things that I thought about as I was taking the train home from university just now was this issue around sense of ownership. And that's what you're talking about here. Yes. Yes. Of, of, of somehow helping citizens, helping residents feel like they are invested and important within the process at all exactly. stages from from because when you're talking about you know the ideal situation would be to have your planners in the neighborhood finding out you know in real time what's happening so that they could make in, in, informed decisions that again is is about trying to get a sense of meaning and ownership into these exactly right Exactly right. It, 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 it's critically important, Amber. I'm glad you put those words on it because that's exactly right. Um, and, and you can own a lot of things. You can own your apartment or your house. You can own the development that you're, you're a part of. You can own the community, the neighborhood that you're a part of. You can own the process and feel like, yes, you make a difference. And, and boy, does that make a difference in, 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 the, in the way things, in the outcomes, for sure, if people feel that sense of ownership. Don't get me wrong. There are some, there are some, some, some uh, potholes in that road, right? There are some people who, um, I, I've known some, I've known some spectacular citizen participants, some, some just glorious people. My friend, Sandra Graham, who was such a good citizen activist, she literally walked up on the stage of Harvard graduation grabbed the microphone out of the president's hand and told the entire audience how they were doing bad things to her neighborhood. <laughs> now that's a citizen person when that we this? should all when be thankful for. <laughs> Sandra was, was one of my heroes. <laughs> when was this? When did this happen? Oh, this is, this is literally back in the, in probably in the middle 70s sometimes. I bet in, we can find a video of that. I'm sure that was filmed. <laughs> it must have been a video somewhere. You're right. <laughs> so, so, People like Sandra, I would always listen to whatever she was saying, and and she did help us in our in our reform of the Cambridge Housing Authority with some very critical engagement with some citizens. Mm. But I've also known some citizen advocates like that who took advantage of their ownership positions. They were on the boards of a mm. program, and the major outcome of that program was the board member got a nice home with a mm. big assistance for it. And so, and so I don't want to be naive here and and mm. and, and and whitewash the whole thing. Um, but again, one of the reasons that those not so good engaged persons can do that is because fewer people are engaged. Mm. Uh, I, would, I would sense that in the one particular case I'm thinking about that if, if, if there had been a, a more robust uh, effort to make more and more citizens engaged in the process, they would have shut this other person down. They would have, they would have told her she couldn't benefit from that. She couldn't get that home at a mm. big discount because it was favoritism and, and, and conflict of interest for her sitting on the board. So uh, that, that, that pressure wasn't there from other citizens around her. And so mm. she, she got away with it. So um, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's, 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 a, it's about getting as many people to have that ownership you spoke about as you, as you possibly can. So this ownership idea, I, the, 
comes towards something to do with citizenship, doesn't it? Of creating through housing and through, I, I guess, in your case, planning practice and planning and the development of planning policy, creating good citizens. Um, <clears throat> which comes to a point around the, the importance of housing, because you're, you are very, very evangelical about the right to affordable housing. Yes. And I just wanted you to talk about a, a bit about that. Like, obviously, beyond the beyond the um, the sort of Maslowian root primary needs of right, um, right. Abraham Maslow's triangle, everybody needs a house. We get we get that. But why why is why are you why is it so important? Well, um, I, I think. Uh, There's a there's a wonderful book written here recently uh, by Desmond by a guy named Matt Desmond called Evicted. Um, I would passionately recommend it to your students. Um, um, and he's a he's a sociologist who went and lived in Milwaukee and spent time with five different families, each of whom suffered an eviction or several evictions in the course of his time there. Uh, and, and what that book did for me was make even more real than I thought I understood before, how critical housing security is to a reasonable life. If you're worried about where you're gonna sleep next week or how you're possibly gonna be able to pay the rent next month or how to get everybody into the car so you can move to another place for the fourth time in, in a year, um, you just can't attend to the rest of your life. Um, you can't look for a job, you can't go to school, you can't um, uh, arrange for good food for your family, uh, you can't get the health care you need. Um, the average uh, homeless or near homeless child in America moves three times within a school year. That's four different classmates, four different teachers, four different curriculums. The likelihood of that child thriving uh, in the future is uh, is very slim. Some do, but it's, you, it's they're working with two and a half strikes against them. Uh, and so I believe that for the health of our society, it's really important that everybody, everybody, everybody know where they're going to sleep tonight, know how they're going to pay for the for their house for the next future, and that that stability will unlock their potential, whatever that might be, to contribute to the broader culture. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's, you're right, it, it, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's a bit of a moral issue for me. I, I, if we lived in a very poor society, where we're all kind of trying to scrape together a few branches of a tree to shelter us from the rain, that might be a little different, but we're not. We're a very rich society, Ambrose, in, in the States. Uh, and there is no reason in the world why any, uh, any person shouldn't be able to, to have a decent place to sleep tonight that will get them out of the rain and, and, and be affordable and, and have enough space for their family. Um, it's a really it's, interest, it is a really interesting one. I mean, it's the, when you were in Glasgow, around that same time, I, <clears throat> I was doing re research on housing, but their architectural history, which was, you know, right basically moral free uh anyway um <laughs> now 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 <laughs> work 
without ethical content. No, um, <laughs> and it was... <laughs> I'm sure I've met a couple of architects who have strong morals. I'm sure I have. <laughs> yeah, histor historians, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, the... Uh, uh, and I met this woman, I was out by the canal in, in Glasgow, and, and I met this woman, I got talking to her because she had nice um, uh, dogs that I was um, uh, stroking, and she had just been moved from her house in the east end of Glasgow to a house in the west end of Glasgow. And, and I had known that tenure, like legal tenure, was a, a critical issue, because I'd seen it in other, in other work I'd done in other countries and stuff. But it just suddenly the penny dropped. This idea that you, th this basic understanding of the world that middle class people have, which is right. that you can live where you want to live, right. is not available to a very large number of people. Exactly. That, 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 that their accommodation, their right to live in a place is by the grace of somebody else. Right. It's, a, it's a remarkable it was just a remarkable thing, and I just suddenly struck me. Yeah, that issue around, as you say, it's a, it is a moral issue. So, what does what does housing? What it? How would you define affordable housing then? Because it, in London at the moment, I think affordable housing is something like two thirds market value, and obviously the market value is glitteringly expensive. So, affordable housing isn't affordable. Uh, well, we have a definition for it in this country, which is. It's, it's got some problems, but, uh, but uh, it's not a bad place to start. Uh, affordable housing uh, with a capital A and a capital H are that set of programs we have that primarily are aimed at people whose income is 80% of the median in their area or less. So roughly speaking, the lower 40% of the, of the population in terms of income. And then the other requirement is that the rent that they pay should not be more than 30% of their income. So if your income is $1,000 a month, your rent should not be more than $300. Um, now, uh, the, the, that requires subsidies. There, it is not possible in our country to build a home paying sort of reasonable cost for land and labor and materials and taxes and so on and so forth um, and make it available to people in that income category um, without some form of subsidy. Uh, and so um, we have a bunch of programs to do that with. Um, the oldest one is this public housing program I was talking about, like your council housing. Um, and, and in that case, the federal government gave the housing authorities a 100% grant to build their homes. So there's no mortgage. And then they realized 30 years after they started that even the tenant's capacity to pay rent wasn't enough to cover the operating expenses, pay for cutting the lawn and painting the halls and fixing the plumbing. So they provided an operating subsidy to, to make sure that uh, every tenant's, so the housing authority basically would look at their operating budget and then they would look at their tenants and look at their incomes and take 30% of that number. And the federal government in theory made up the gap between what tenants could afford to pay and what it would cost to run the place. It, it, they botched the theory, they, they botched the system a lot in those days. But since then we've developed other programs that have helped nonprofits get into the housing world like your associations. 
uh, and even some of our for-profit operators run, uh, will do affordable housing developments by taking advantage of one or the other of the subsidies that are available. Our low-income housing tax credit is a big program for producing equity for developers to reduce the development cost. Um, housing authorities can award housing vouchers to developers that they can use to to, to serve residents of low income. So the, but if you take that definition, Ambrose, that is people who are under 80% of median and who have rents that are, and, and have, have rents created that are under 30% of their income, then we have money for about a quarter of those people. So we have a grand total of somewhere around 5 million homes that are available through the public housing program or the low income housing tax credit program or, or one of the others. And we have a need of about 20 million. So we're 15 million short um, at, at the households, that's households, not individuals, households. So it's more individuals. Um, and so that's our definition of affordable housing. There are of course, what we call in this country, NOAAs, naturally occurring affordable housing. That is Aunt Tilly has been renting to Fred for years. And Aunt Tilly has just never raised the rent. And uh, so it's still pretty affordable for Fred. Um, uh, Michael Stone has written some interesting work, um, professor at UMass Boston, uh, about shelter rent, arguing that 30% is a bad number. Um, uh, if, if Bill Gates pays 30% of his income for his rent, he's got a lot of money left over to do other stuff with. Mm -hmm. But if a person earning $15,000 a year pays 30% of that money for rent, they've got nothing left over to buy mm -hmm. food and get healthcare and books for their kids and, and, and so on. So uh, Michael has, has argued that that should be a sliding scale um, below the 80% of median number. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it, we, we it, I'm sure your students have learned by now about this, this, this distinction between housing cost, which is about land and mortar and brick and, and lumber and taxes and so on. And housing price, which is what we rent the place for, or sell the place for, because housing price and housing cost have almost nothing to do with each other. Uh, housing price is entirely a product of supply and demand. So um, the average rent for a two bedroom apartment in Cambridge right now is $3,500 per month. Um, uh, it's just, outrageous and, and it's affordable only by literally rich people. Um, and, and the reason is because so many people want to live in Cambridge, right? It's got these two big universities which have huge staffs. Um, it's got a, it's, it's one, two subway stops away from Boston. It's kind of cool in Harvard Square. So the demand to live in Cambridge is ferocious and the ability to increase supply is almost non-existent. Uh, there, there really essentially is no vacant land in Cambridge. It's just a question of, can I buy somebody's house, tear it down and build five units where there was only one before. Mm. Um, so that supply and demand problem exists all over the country, right? The, yeah. In Des Moines, it's not so bad, but in San Francisco, it's horrible and New York and Los Angeles and so on and so forth. Um, basically everywhere that people want to live. Um, so, um, that's yeah, I, I, read, I remember when I was out, I was out in California one time, and I read a story about someone, one of the, one of the rookies for one of the NFL teams, or one of the basketball teams. Anyway, should have been really well paid, but right. still couldn't afford to live in San still Francisco. That's right. That's 
Well, and, and the, the problem is, uh, Ambrose, that um, I, I know people would like to say this business about, um, well, some towns just don't need affordable housing, right? They're just uh, it, Wellesley is a town full of rich people here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Every police officer, every fire person, every wa- waiter in a restaurant, every uh, clerk in a store in that town, uh, every school teacher need, is eligible for the affordable housing. They all make incomes less than 80% of very immediate income. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you heard me talk maybe in a place like Cambridge, we get a brand new school teacher in our school system. They're energetic and, and have all the latest techniques and they're excited, but they don't have any background, right? So they take the first job they can find. Well, they get a job in Cambridge and uh, they can't afford to live within 30 miles of Cambridge. So they live up in Revere and way up north. Of them. And they drive down to Cambridge every day. It's this terrible commute. And as soon as they get three years or four years under their belt as a school teacher and have a resume, they apply for a job closer to Revere. And they leave the Cambridge school system and go to Revere, where they're now an experienced teacher. And we have to fill another job. Now, a lot of people say, oh, it's a school system problem, or it's a human resources problem, or it's a, it's a housing problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and our city has to keep retraining and keep recruiting uh, new people to come and teach in our school system. There's some good things about that. But by and large, if we had a better, more diverse, more, more scattered housing uh, sector, we would have more teachers who could stay into their year, years of becoming veteran teachers and yeah, yeah. with all that experience. So um, it's another way in which housing is, is really important for communities to understand the, their yeah. needs for this. And, and you could even talk, you can even go further and talk about the environmental issues. That woman driving down from Revere every day, that's terrible for, our, for the air quality and, and, the, and the fuels used and so on and so forth. If she could walk to work from someplace in Cambridge, that would be much better for us environmentally. So how do we? So how do you resolve this? So if if <clears throat> demand dictates the price of d- d- demand dictates the price of housing, I was talking to uh, uh, a chap called Professor Greg Keefe, who's uh, leads the architecture school or led the architecture school at Queens in Belfast, and he was talking about the example of Japan, where he said. Housing depreciates in value in Japan, like any other commodity. Hmm. Now, that sounds pretty good to me, because obviously, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound good to me because I've just bought my first house. So <laughs> I'm hoping uh-huh. to ca- you, You've crossed the river, Mr. B- Mr. Gillick. <laughs> I certainly now have. Now you're a little suspect here. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and it wasn't what we, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the dream. Um, the, the the dream was something different and, 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 and something cooperative and shared and mutual because, um, well, it would be nice to have someone to help me look after my children. <laughs> no. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest. No. So, so, so what are the, how do we, how do, we, how is this addressed? How can this be addressed? Well, um, because densification is the is is the proposed solution, isn't it? You make more units, and they're smaller units, and to maintain, because because there there comes these intersections about, um, you know how uh, heights of buildings and um, qualities of the area, conservation areas, and so on. Yeah. You can't go too high, so you end up making smaller and smaller units, and that doesn't seem to be a very sensible solution. Well, it's, I think there are, are a couple of, of, of paths. Uh, one certainly is a little bit more densification. Um, 
there are places in our, I mean, I'm unfortunately one of those people who could happily live in Manhattan. So density doesn't scare me at all. <laughs> uh, not sure my wife feels the same way, but, but, but density is okay with me. But I realize it's not so, so good for everybody and therefore we need a wider range of solutions. So, so the, the, the first one to think about is uh, on that score, uh, I think is the, is the uh, medium height, low, medium height, high density kinds of things. In other words, you, you, you walk around Paris, right? Uh, Paris doesn't have a whole lot of, at least last time I was there, it doesn't have a whole lot of 30-story buildings, but they have an awful lot of buildings that are five stories tall uh, all over the city. And those buildings are full of people. And those, that means that the, that the storage are healthy in those neighborhoods and the transportation systems have enough riders to make sense for them. And so that sort of uh, 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 not so much stretching for lawns in the city as to say we can fill up the blocks with buildings that don't have to be 20 stories high, but if they're five stories high or six stories high, um, they, they can hold a lot of people and that can make the city work better economically mm -hmm. and, and, and environmentally and, and other kinds of ways. Um, another uh, solution, intriguingly enough, is home ownership. Um, Cambridge, for example, has a first time home buyer program. Uh, where the city will give you a big chunk of change if you're in that under 80%. Uh, actually, the homeownership program goes up to 120% of median income. We'll give you a big chunk of change, a couple hundred thousand dollars to help write down the cost of your home. And then when you get ready to move out of that home, uh, we will require that you sell it to another eligible homeowner for a price that's, that's <clears throat> the same level of, of, of discount that you got when you bought it. And so what we've done now is create a 500 home stock, mostly condominiums to be fair, not single family homes, but, um, but, but we now have 500 homes that are sort of a rolling uh, 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 group of places where people can learn to be a good homeowner. <clears throat> they can learn about the importance of maintenance and, and relying on themselves to figure out who's gonna come fix their faucet when it breaks. And, uh, and, and putting aside money for their capital improvements down the road and paying their mortgage on time. And, and, and if, if they're lucky and, and their income goes up, they can uh, move out of that place and get into a home where they can, they can benefit from the real estate appreciation. Uh, but we've got 500 homes now that are essentially er early home ownership opportunities. And that's another way to do this kind of thing that does move people toward uh, the ownership status that, that they might want. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's lots to be said for, um, for mixed income housing, that is some market rate homes and some that are more subsidized. Uh, in Cambridge, we have a good inclusionary zoning ordinance where if you build uh, more than 10 homes in the city, then 20% of them must be made affordable for people in this 80% and under category. Um, and so that means every time somebody builds 10 homes, we've got two of them are affordable. And so mm -hmm. we've got a, we, the, the whole city stock, we are about an 18% affordable. Uh, but if every new development gets 20% affordable, we'll creep up toward that 20% number over time. I think we ought to be speaking to um, the people responsible for creating our housing crisis in Cambridge. These universities have huge uh, attractions for staff, for faculty, and for fa and, and for students. 
well, Harvard houses most of their undergraduates. They only house about a fourth of their graduate students. And that means they're out there in the market competing with Joe and Jane and their two kids for a two bedroom apartment. Um, and and um, so when we lost rent control uh, a number of years ago, uh, when the state outlawed rent control, we lost 2000 kids from our school system. Mm. Uh, we closed five schools um, because um, uh, those families couldn't compete any longer. So we mm. need to ask the universities to play a bigger role in housing their own students. That is the ones who really have to be on the campus uh, and for making a contribution to the housing of their other people, their staff and their, and their faculty who are naturally drawn to the universities. So and, that's quite an interesting idea. That's, that's quite almost like a, that's almost an idea out of the Victorian period, isn't it? it is. Like this idea of the factory owner providing right. workers cottages or terraced housing or whatever it is. It's quite an interesting idea. It's a radical idea. Well, I, 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 I there, there, historically, over time, there have been problems with company towns, as, as mm -hmm. you well know. And so I don't quite know what the arrangement is here for whether you say to the university, you've got to build housing for your staff and faculty, <clears throat> whether you say, you know, you've got to facilitate enough homes in this community that 40% of your staff and faculty could live there if they chose. Mm. Um, and if it's not them, it's somebody else in those income categories. I'm yeah. not sure quite what the mechanism is, yeah. but I definitely think that they need to, to play a bigger role in, in because they are the creators of our housing of our housing problem. And so they need to take some responsibility. Universities, um, I hope I'm not offending anybody, uh, it, 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 I say this, universities are, these large universities that people like you and I work for, Ambrose, are pretty good at seeing their role in the world and creating new knowledge and training people to, to, to take care of problems around the world. And, and they're also pretty good at national stuff. You know, we train some future senators and mayors and, and, and scientists and teachers and so all that stuff. They are crappy neighbors to the cities they live in. It's yeah, just right. awful. Um, and and they, they, it's, 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 it's as if they build a wall around their campus and say, you know, nothing exists out there outside our wall. And so I think they need to do more about this. And I think they need to be called into accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I, I think your university has probably got a, a bit of spare change down the back of the sofa that it could it's, perhaps. It's true that that's true that if they dig deep in their pockets, they can find some cash. <laughs> Stick some half sucked sweets, maybe a conquer or two and some, yeah, some copper. Exactly. That's right. um, exactly. So, I mean, that touches on this theme of gentrification. And we, I mean, we have exactly the same problem in Britain with our universities essentially turning our, our, our most desirable parts of our cities, which in Britain is generally speaking the West End of cities, into de facto ghettos for um, students. And, and obviously there's the, the other thing about students is that they don't actually spend very much money so they're not, they're not even useful. You know, they, they don't eat much. They drink a lot, but they tend to drink in student bars. And then, and then they, they, they don't do shopping. You know, they go to clothes shops. They might eat in cafes. So, so they, they, they disfigure the kind of character of the city, which is the reason that the university is there in the first place. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a mess. But, that, I mean, we could talk about gentrification forever, I suppose. And it's... Um, it's a it's a big issue. I I did I did want to go on to this idea, talk about this idea of barriers to housing. So sure. you mentioned in, in your in your TED talk, 
TED Talk blog, you mentioned money and regulation. And I think money is, we've touched on that. But this idea of regulation. So I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and reading Eleanor Ostrom, the economist Eleanor Ostrom, who, Nobel laureate um, from 2007. And she, she talked about one of the papers that she, she wrote talked about co-production and she talked about how um, there, there, there are these, there are barriers, essentially barriers to, to, to the kind of the co-production of services and housing in, in the way that we're talking about it is a service, isn't it? It's not in every country in the world. uh, Housing is not necessarily a service, but certainly in Britain and, Judging by what you're saying, housing is seen as being part of the, the remit of the of the state, and therefore constitutes service. And the the active participation in of the citizenry in the production, maintenance, the conception actually, the conception, design, production, realization, implementation, the maintenance of these things, is is critical to their success. But she also talked about. Um, yeah, this issue around barriers and regulation being a critical problem in that the citizenry can't actually engage at any point with regulation, with the policy that con- constructs their this service, this particular service. Ostrom is talking more generally about other types of service, so things like policing and, um, and um, right. healthcare and yeah. education. Yeah. But I think it's equally relevant to housing. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you see um, this, this specific barrier. Um, yeah, why you? Why you? I'm, I'm just pulling up my, just pulling up my email here. Why you see the the, the idea of regulation as a specific barrier? Well. Um... In, in this country, um, and I, I never <clears throat> learned enough about this in, in Great Britain to, to understand it fully, but in this country, uh, zoning ordinances are, are sort of, uh, are sort of uh, uh, holy texts for local communities. Uh, every city and town has their own zoning ordinance. So in Massachusetts, we have 351 cities and towns. It's a tiny little state, but we've divided it up mercilessly uh, into all these tiny little places. But every city and town has their own zoning ordinance and it can be very different. You cross that little silly line that we drew 300 years ago and now you're in Somerville or you're in Watertown or you're in Belmont and you've got a different zoning requirement than you do in Cambridge. My business partner, uh, Bob Engler, uh, asserts um, that there is no land in Mass, no buildable land in Massachusetts zoned as of right for multifamily housing. Now you can make a, in our economy, you make general, a, a, a general statement that if you can't build multifamily housing, you can't build affordable housing. That is, you need to spread the cost of land over a number of homes uh, in the building in order to make the numbers work. So to not have land zoned for multifamily meanings, you have to go and ask for permission for a variance from the zoning ordinance. Uh, and most towns just simply won't give you that if you want to build affordable housing because they're they're not very enthusiastic about adding that to their stock in their community. You, by, by, by this definition of multi, multi-family housing, is that because that looks like 
Pruitt Igo, you know, tower blocks. Is that the expectation? Yeah, I, it, it it is the it is the um, that that is what drives the 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 um, this kind of uh, or this kind of way of laying out a zoning ordinance that we will see. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, if you go into town and you want to build a luxury apartment building, uh, and you ask for a variance from the zoning, they might give you that because they see that as a big tax revenue for the city Mm. and town. Our our cities and towns thrive on that most of their income is property tax, real Mm. estate property tax. Uh, And so um, they they don't mind a luxury apartment building that that is in town, but they're not anxious to have an affordable housing development. And and I would tell you, part of that is the shape of the building. You're exactly right. But a part of it is the standard bias against poor people um, even though those poor people probably are at least in eligible terms could include the person who's teaching their kid in school, the person who's going to protect them from a fire in their home, the person who's going to clean their streets and take their trash away. Those people are all probably eligible for that housing. Mm-hmm. So uh, this image that it's terrible people, that are those stupid poor people that are, uh, don't work hard and, and all of that political stuff is just wrong. Um, and and finally, uh, in our country, I would tell you that some piece of that is race. That is, people assume that people who have low incomes are black uh, or brown, uh, and therefore they don't want black or brown people in that town because they will reduce the property values. So, um, and, and every city and town is some combination of those factors, right? Somewhere between racial bias and dislike of high-rise buildings and suspicion of people without much, very much money and so on and so forth. And, and it's true for each individual. There are individuals who are, who are not prepared to act in a racist way, but are worried about their property values. And so mm-hmm. they think this will reduce their property value. So, so in, in our state, uh, and, and in our state <clears throat> on this score is the most progressive in the nation. We have a law that allows the state to override local zoning. Uh, you go to the rest of the country and they're just as likely to shoot you as, as not if you express that point of view. Um, but we, in our state, we say every city and town is responsible to make sure that 10% of their housing stock is affordable. If you haven't met that standard and somebody comes to town and proposes a development, which would require variance or something like that, then if the town turns them down, they can come to the state and the state can say, sorry, town, you got to allow this. Uh, we built about 50,000 affordable homes over the, over the 60 years of that, of that statute in the state. No other state has anything like it. Um, uh, so it, it, it's very, it varies in various states. But um, I, would, I, I just would, would tell you that <clears throat> that element, and there's some ways, it's less common now, but some ways in which building codes can mitigate against uh, affordable housing. Uh, and, 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 and there's some ways in which processes if you want to build some housing in our town, you got to go to this board, then you got to go to that board, then you got to go to this board, then you got to go to this board over here. And, mm-hmm. and so any affordable housing developer uh, faces a two-year delay to get their get their project built, which can kill a deal uh, in terms of the costs of holding onto the land and hiring advocates to go present your case and so on and so forth. So um, uh, we, we need some we need, there's some other more arcane things like the number of votes you have to have to change in your zoning ordinance and 
uh, sort of minor stuff. But but yes, I think regulatory regimens are are part of the problem for affordable housing. Yeah. I think that segues beautifully with this the, the 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 thing that i wanted you know as i said before we started recording this this issue around co-housing which you yeah. are which kind of squares the circle a little bit doesn't it yes co-housing it's a yes. model of housing which provides citizenship and you've talked about that a little bit i think um citizen responsibility and citizen engagement um, and it provides community, community, yeah, and it's more affordable, and it's denser. So you live in a co-housing. I live in a co-op. Oh, you live um, in a co-op, not a co-housing. Which is, which is which is just a little different from co-housing per se. Co-housing properties, which is is a, an idea that that swept across this country 15, 20 years ago um, from Denmark and, and, and has been adopted in many parts. Um, um, Co-housing developments can be either cooperatives or condominiums in terms of their legal status. We organized ourselves as a cooperative um, and we organized ourselves as a cooperative before the, con the co-housing movement got here. Uh, if we'd been 20 years later, we probably would have said, oh, we should be co-housing. And then, But then you still have to figure out, do we own our apartment or do we own shares in the corporation? And the corporation owns our apartment, which is the way a co-op works. Um, so, so yes, um, we bought so, this. So, so in, in your particular case, you're a co-op, so you own shares in the co-op. And the shares entitle us to two things, to live in one of the apartments that the co-op owns, and secondly, to vote in the affairs of the co-op. So um, you can't have shares if you don't live here. And if you live here, you got to have shares and, and you get to vote in the way that, in the way the thing works. But you can't- so You have no renters here, for example. Okay, but you can't sell the apartment and profit off the back of it. That's correct. Um, the The- what I have is shares, and mm -hmm. we have a, an elaborate set of bylaws that explain what Sue and I can do if we want to leave. Um, and it involves, in our particular case, and everybody can write this case the way they want to, but in our particular case, in this in this co-op, um, we we will will um, uh, advertise the availability of shares. Um, the the there'll be uh, some people who can come and say they'd like to live here. Um, and, and buy those shares. Um, we'll try to meet them and get other people who live here to meet them. And we'll talk a little bit about what it means to be in this co-op. You don't, you, you know, we're not, we don't particularly interested in people who will sit in their apartment all day long and not talk to anybody and, and not go up to a work day and, and help us make some repairs around the building and so on and so forth. So there's a little bit of, of, of sort of a, it's a little tricky, but there's a little bit of a selection process involved in, in, uh, in, in, in selling the shares, but it does mean that that we've agreed that we can't just walk down a street corner and find a realtor and sell the shares and we're done with it. Mm. Uh, there's a process that involves everybody in the co-op. It's a small co-op. There are just eight families here. Mm -hmm. And what's the, I mean, as I was saying to you, the, 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 it's like a shared job, isn't it? It's like a piece of work, this housing model, where you kind of, you collaborate. The building is a, a, a framework around which a form of socialization and citizenship. I mean, 
can occur. It's the house is a is a tool to a obviously shelter and home and things like that, but it does something more significant. I, I think that's exactly right, Ambrose. Um, you know, we've all we bought this building in 1973. Uh, of the 12 people who live here now, eight of us have lived here all 50 years. Um, and so it's, it's quite a community. Uh, we've raised a, a, a spectacular set of children here. Uh, they come back and bring their children here. Um, we we uh, have been politically engaged in our community. Um, we have modeled um, um, res- you know, sort of political responsibility and professional responsibility. Um, uh, the, the, the kids have some sense of, of engagement in, in the communities that they've gotten from the way their parents are, are involved. And you think um, that's directly re- that directly relates to the housing itself? This is the, the housing is, a, is an active agent in this, pro- this process of socialization. A- a- absolutely. I- I'll give you an example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the first 15 years here, our family and another family that live in the building, um, the two women were college roommates. So we've been close friends for mm-hmm. a very, very long time. But, but in order to make the building work, our two families actually shared an apartment. There was bedrooms and bathroom at one end of the house for us and bedrooms and bathrooms at the other end of the house for them. And then we have a dining room, living room, kitchen and playroom that were common to both families. So the eight of us, they have two kids, we have two kids. The eight of us ate dinner together every night for 15 years. Our our kids and their kids kind of grew up basically as brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, as they were getting toward the end of high school, it was getting a little tight in here. We had five teenagers in the house. Their two kids, our two kids, and a fifth kid that whose parents had sort of abandoned them. There's a friend of our kids, so she lived with us for a year. Five teenagers in the house, one telephone. <laughs> we it, it began to get a little tight. And, and one of the people upstairs moved out of her apartment, and we realized that we could, uh, one, of, one of us families, the Stockers, were going to move upstairs to this apartment up, upstairs and expand it a little bit and work things out and the Thompsons would stay downstairs. So one night at dinner, we, we said, we're gonna, anyway, to just let you know, um, we've, we've, uh, we've, you know, uh, uh, Janice leaving. And so we're gonna, we're gonna uh, open up her apartment a little bit and the stockers are gonna move up there. And, and the Thompson was, and the kids were outraged. You what? You can't, you never talk to us. You can't do this. You talk about citizen participation and then you do something like this without consulting us. We're, this is like a divorce. You can't do this. <laughs> and of course they were exactly right. <laughs> uh, what did and, you do? I mean, it literally, literally Ambrose, this is up one flight of stairs. <laughs> and we had even back stairs that connect the two apartments directly. <laughs> but our kids had taken in so much from us about how one engages and how one includes everybody in the conversation. We make all decisions here by consensus. The kids had seen this at work and were furious that we had forgotten about this when we made such a critical decision. (laughs) So do I think the building in the the context here has shaped the citizenship of the people in this building? Yes, I do. Do you think it's more widely applicable that, that this housing typology, the, the co-op or the, or the, or the co-housing, do you think it, it actually 
I know you say it swept the nation. We have these little pop-up occasional. We, we, we come across these, these co-housing communities and they are amazing. I, funnily enough, I, weirdly enough, I, when I was doing that thing I was telling you about with the BBC, I, um, yep. I looked around because uh, like the weekend before, I thought I'm going to go and see some co-housing. I'm going to go and see an a, a, a intentional community, right, 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 which yeah. is a lovely phrase. It's a lovely, lovely name for it. Yeah, and, yeah um, I agree. And uh, so I typed it into Google and I found one 15 miles away. And it was a strange but rather wonderful group called the Bruderhof. Now, <laughs> so I got in my car with my children and I went down yeah. to see the Bruderhof. And there they were making their German toys. And um, I had a wonderful day. Yeah, I had a yeah, wonderful yeah. day. And it was in an old... Uh, uh, I, it was in an old school. It might well have been an old Borstal. I'm not sure. An old sort of boys secure, <laughs> secure school. Anyway, whatever. And um, and I was wondering, you know, it got us thinking about, my wife and I thinking about how we would like to do this. But it's difficult. You've got to have a lot of capital up front. Well, it's yeah, not, we, it's know, not we, that applicable to average Joe and average Jane, is it? Well, you know, um, we, we were... We were <laughs> we were pretty average Joe and pretty Jane. That's probably unfair. We, you know, the, the 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 tricky part about our community is on a on a, on a demographic scale, it's a tiny dot, mm -hmm. right? We're all white, uh, hetero. When we began, at least heterosexual couples, father, mother, two kids, one boy, one girl. Um, we just, just, there's no diversity in this building at all. Um, it, it's opened up a little bit since then, but um, there, there, was, there was, there was that about us. Um, and, and what I would say is, and, and we, yes, we all, the men all had second degrees by then. The women were on their way to a second degree, but we weren't making big money, no lawyers, no doctors, um, you know, city planners and, and, and so on. And so, um, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, um, we couldn't get a bank to finance us. Um, and I, I won't bore you with all the details, but we ended up getting financing from a very unusual source. Um, and well, in Boston, Massachusetts, I don't, uh, the, the mind boggles. <laughs> <laughs> your reputation precedes you and as a red sox fan i am highly suspicious by the way <laughs> um uh so um uh, we were able to we were able to pull it off with the combination of some resources that we pulled together we had a, we had at least one outside person who who believed in what we were doing and gave us a little capital and mm -hmm. with a with a not really you know I, i'd like to give you some money and and i, I won't i can't live there because i live up in maine but i could come down to boston i'd like a place to stay when i come down to boston i think she only ever stayed in that room one time uh, she was really giving us some money to help us get this done mm. um another person bought some some shares uh, uh and, and never moved in. Uh, and so, but he let us keep the capital. So we had a little bit of help from, from other folks. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it, it, it was, when we bought it, it was a 12 apartment building. We've since mucked it around until it's only eight apartments now. 
our rents now are, I remember I told you that $3,500 number. Um, our rents are about, about $1,500 a month. So it's a huge difference mm. uh, because uh, A, we do a lot of the management ourselves, uh, uh, although we now have a management company that helps us out. But um, the biggest difference is um, $1,500 is about what it costs to run an apartment building like this. Mm-hmm. And the 3,500 means those private for-profit folks are taking $2,000 a month and putting it in their back pocket every month. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, and, you know, my most radical idea is that I want the private for-profit uh, organizations out of the, re- of the rental housing business. Mm-hmm. Because as long as, they're, as long as they're running your home, as long as they own your home, they're not going to leave any money on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in a, in a sort of a, a naive uh, philosophical way, you would say, all they're, they're not being evil. They're just doing exactly what capitalism says you should do. Mm-hmm. You should maximize the value of your asset, take home profits, use those profits to build more assets, provide more jobs, et cetera, et cetera. That's what a good capitalist does. So they're just behaving the way they're supposed to behave. Um, uh, but it doesn't help people with housing needs that don't mm-hmm. have enough money to pay for that, for, for that, for that cost, even though they ought to and would like to live in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, so, um, right. So it, very, it, it's a really wonderful, it's a, I think it's a really wonderful example to, to finish on of your own, which is very personal. And I'm very grateful that you would be willing to share it, but I've really enjoyed hearing some of your thoughts well a fraction a tiny fraction of your thoughts on these <laughs> some of these issues and perhaps we've been a little perhaps i haven't done you justice and given you time enough to kind of unpack no, no, no. things Ambrose, let me say one more thing let me say one more thing about the co-op um the group of people who've gathered here in commonplace which is the name of our of our co-op um are somewhat unusual for our generation right there are not a lot of people in our generation who would have wanted to be in a housing setting where you had a meeting every month about, about the building and about mm-hmm. the other things going on in town. It would not have wanted to live in a building that was this, sort of this sharing this much mm. um, uh, of your life with, uh, with other families this close together. But I do believe that your students are a part of a different generation mm-hmm. and maybe you are as well. That is where sharing is a much bigger piece of what you, how you understand the world to work. Mm-hmm. Um, these generations, these younger generations share bikes, they share cars, they share uh, uh, laundromats, they, all kinds of things. And, and so I'm hopeful that as we go forward, more and more people will feel like some kind of, of shared housing, uh, because I do believe that a ton of people want more connections. Mm-hmm. They feel more isolated. They feel as though they don't have a friendship circle that's that's that you have business friends but they don't have people just to hang around with and and people to talk to when things are hard mm-hmm. uh, we've been through divorces here a couple of people have died here um and and we can talk to each other about those things mm-hmm. in, in important ways and, and it's been a it, it couldn't have been a, a better way to survive COVID than to be in this building with other people that we've known and loved for 50 years mm-hmm. so i do believe that there's hope that this form of housing will expand. Uh, and, and what that means is the average uh, starter home for a family in the, this country 
is now 2,600 square feet. Um, each of us in this building, at, at exactly the stage in our lives when we would have gone out and bought a single family home in the suburbs of 2,600 square feet, in fact, have raised our kids here in about 1,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. So we've had a lighter, a lighter footprint on the planet. And that's something else that will be attractive to the younger generations. Um, sorry to get a little preachy at the end there, Ambrose, but I thought I, I want to say to the students that you're speaking to that 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 I'm very hopeful about their generation and the kinds of things they will do with housing going forward. Yes, well, I think that's very beautiful, and I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for for that because I think it is, as you say, it's a wonderful model, and it's a wonderful opportunity. And inspiring change as well. So thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you asked me to do this, Ambrose. It was great to see you again. Thank you very much. This was great fun for me, and I really enjoyed doing it. Well, thank you too. Really, really do appreciate it. Well, ain't that sweet. Thank you to Jim for his passion and willingness to share so much. Please see the podcast description for links to the video and article mentioned and for Jim's professional and academic profile. And of course, do please like, subscribe, follow and share A's for Architecture everywhere. Cheers.